Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, author Jesse Jarno returns to tell Nate about his book, Big Day Coming, Yola Tingo and the Rise of Indie Rock. Nate and Jesse discuss Hoboken's leading indie rock band and how their slow and steady methods won the indie rock race. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and returning to the show is Jesse Jarno, author of Big Day Coming, Yola Tengo and the Rise of Indie Rock. Jesse, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. Always fun. Yeah, it's a treat. And this is a fascinating band uh, to cover. And one I would never have thought of writing a book about. (laughs) I I totally underestimated this band for a solid 17, 18 years before they just became ubiquitous amongst my friends and colleagues. And I never disliked them, but it was – I guess I should start with the readers that introduce who is Yola Tengo. Yola Tengo – listeners. Yola Tengo – uh, started in the Hoboken scene in the early 80s, came out of the New York rocker fanzine or magazine world, and soldiered along, signed with Matador in 1993, right when Matador got on Atlantic. And then they were just the ultimate creeper band. I mean, I remember they got on Lollapalooza on the second stage as Lollapalooza was fading, but there was still this Yola Tango's on Lollapalooza? What the heck? <laughs> kind of vibe so they, they as you say in the intro they were a band that found a third way between playing for nobody in tiny clubs and getting sucked into the arena mtv high pressure major label world even though they still 
dealt with major labels and benefited from those relationships, they navigated a path that let them live a pretty normal life for rock musicians and succeeded wildly by any standard. Yeah. No, I mean, they're, they're a band that um, they've just, you know, they just sort of committed to what they were doing so long ago. And for them, it was, it, you know, it's hard it, it, when they, when they started as a band, which was, which was 1984 is when they played their first official show though, that they kind of have, you know, origin groups before that it wasn't like we're going to be a, a band and that's going to be our career and we're going to have hits and that's going to support us for our lives for for um ira kaplan and georgia hubley who are who are the two founding members of the band for them it was just getting about just literally starting the band was about getting over their own shyness about playing music on stage in front of people um which is just such a, a beautifully modest goal. And it, you know, they became a real band very, very quickly and have, you know, been practicing more or less every week since 1984. And that that's a thing that if you keep playing music every week for a really long time, you'll, you'll, you'll get good at it and you'll hopefully find a voice, which, which they did. Um, and something that's really amazing to me is that, you know, so Yola Tango started in the eighties their breakthrough album or what people sort of call their breakthrough album is uh, painful in, in the mid nineties. And I can hear the heart beating is that's uh, painful is uh, 90, 93, uh, 93, then electro pure in 95. And I can hear the heart beating as one in 1997. And, and, and those are sort of the beginning of, of, of what people think of as kind of this classic indie rock band Yola Tango but they had a really powerful original voice just right from the start um listen going back like for me a lot of Yola Tango fandom has been like you know discovering those sort of prime albums and then going back into those early years and being like oh my gosh they were they were really onto something already you know on Ride the Tiger or whatever those songs all have really individual voices that know that you know really not a lot of other songwriters were working in at that point. So it's, it, yeah, it's the, the whole arc and of their career is beautiful to me. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating. And one thing I think that, you know, Yolo Tingo is a band where none of the principals have strong singing voices. That's just a reality. And, well, and they're, you know, they're in the I, Louis I, mean, I, tradition. I have of, to interrupt you and argue with that because well, James uh, has a fucking amazing though. voice and that's, that's true. Sing that's, has one of the most beautiful falsettos in indie rock and that in a very traditional way, like he, he put out an incredible album of Prince covers a bunch of years ago called that skinny motherfucker with a high voice. And he, that is, you know, he's, one that's of a, my, my actual favorite singers. In, that's an in excellent it. point. I, I was thinking of Ira and Georgia, you know, who are and and and, you, and it's so right to point out James McNew, who's the bassist. And you know, Ira will say we weren't really a band until James joined a band in '92, and I think that's a fair assessment. Although when you listen to Fake Book and you listen to their earlier material, they were definitely a band. They just yeah. weren't a great band. But the 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 point I wanted to make was that Ira and Georgia don't have traditionally strong voices, and they come out of the Lou Reed tradition. I guess Lou Reed was probably the first American pop performer to the extent that he was popular, who, following in the wake of Bob Dylan, um, who had a sort of 
out of tune voice or an annoying voice, but he had a powerful voice. Whereas Lou Reed didn't really have a powerful voice. And then Yellow Tingo is in this tradition of bands that followed in the wake of the Velvet Underground, of which there were so many in the early 80s. I'm talking about the Dream Syndicate out of LA, and of course the Feelies out of the same Hoboken scene um, that Yellow Tingo came out of, the Bongos or another, to the point where as a kid in the 80s with a limited budget, when I first heard about Yellow Tingo and heard them, I was like, well, I'm still looking for that Bongos record, or I've, I need to get that other Feelies record. And they weren't, you know, they, they to me, they weren't the main band of the scene when they started that they came out of. They were sort of right, a junior band on that totally. scene. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And I, I would actually point at Fake Book in 1990 as kind of the the, the beginning of that turning point. Um, in the in the first, you know, you're right. Ira does not have what is you know traditionally considered a strong singing voice. And another part of the early years of Yellow Tango is that Georgia just didn't really want to sing. Um, and that 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 changed in in the late 80s and really beginning with Fake Book in 1990 she became a co-lead voice in the band. And, it, you know, Georgia's voice is not, you know, she's not Karen Carpenter. Um, no, she's very similar and, to Mo but, she, but even better, she's Georgia Hubley, you know. Yeah. And and having – and I, I think when she started singing, um, you know, basically as much as Ira or almost as much as Ira, I think that is one of the things that started, you know, making people's ears prick up as like, oh, this, this, this band does have – you know, an original voice. And cause yeah, they were, you know, they were, they, they, they grew out of, they grew out of being a backroom covers band at Maxwell's that, you know, they wanted to play, you know, original song you know, they, they played in cover bands for years and years and years and original songs kind of emerged out of them slowly. And yeah, it was just like, a, like, like I was saying before, piece by piece by piece by piece. And it's, it's, yeah. It's and, it's, and ama it's actually, amazing to go back with like forty years of history and look at how like <laughs> how do you get from you know playing Sex Bomb by Flipper at an office party to like writing Moby Octopad you know it's it's that's amazing to me it is and it's it's an inspiring example of of people who just doggedly keep at something until they're inarguably good at it and inarguably successful at it. But the one point I wanted to make originally in the whole thing, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> what, no, not at all, was that despite their limited performing abilities, they always, always had a massive repertoire. And that is something, you know, as part of the project of this show, I've taken to really studying bands that I personally didn't love or didn't care for. And you, and you start to sort of, and I'm trying to avoid the aesthetic criticism, but you still get into this, how do you evaluate people as performers and musicians? And one of the key abilities to me is something that the Beatles had and that Bob Dylan had and the Grateful Dead have and so many other bands. They had a massive repertoire and an amazing ability to learn songs and perform songs. And that was true of Yola Tingo from the beginning and it really carried through. And I think that's the first indicator. You know, if if you say, if I'm looking at a 17-year-old baseball prospect and he can throw a 99-mile-an-hour fastball in the strike zone, that's a good indicator you might have something. And I think well, right. if you've got a garage band that can do 50 songs within their first five gigs, you might have something there. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what you're describing in terms of Viola Tango is describing, is describing Ira, basically. You know, um, he is in a very literal way, one of the most thoughtful persons, I've, thoughtful people I've ever encountered in that 
he he really thinks through everything. Um, and, and I think that extends to Yola Tango as a project as a whole. And even before Yola Tango, when they were in when they were just cover bands, they had a they didn't repeat songs as a cover band. If they learned 30 songs for, you know, one somebody's birthday party, you know, where they were doing 30 songs with, you know, a bunch of their friends coming up to sing them. The next time they did a, a gig like that, they would make a point of not repeating the songs from the previous one. And that extends to really every part of, of Yola Tango. So even, you know, even when they were a band that was getting up on stage and, you know, Ira was staring at his shoes and, you know, couldn't couldn't make eye contact with the crowd and Georgia didn't want to sing. There's still this thing where they're, you know, writing different set lists every every night and, and thinking about how to make every show something really different and, and special. And for them, you know, a lot of bands, what a different show means is jamming and, and improvisation. And that, you know, certainly has become a part of Yola Tango over the years. But I wouldn't say that's the, the main thing that makes every show different, if that makes if that makes sense. And I and I, I think, you know, when you look at the, the arc of their career, that's, you know, just it, the, the, the amount of change that that's running through it at all times is is, is just so constant. It's amazing. And and before we go on, I want to backtrack a little bit and get into the backgrounds, the family backgrounds of Ira Kaplan and Georgia Hubley, which are really distinctive and interesting, although they sort of at the same time are almost like every indie rocker kind of, you know, and, and, and uh, as somebody coming from the sticks, I was always impressed with people who had celebrity connections like Georgia Hubley does with her parents. Her dad invented Mr. Magoo. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Who is, who is, who is, who is the... Uncle, I can't remember what the exact connection was. It, it, the, maybe it was it was it was John Hubley's uncle. You know, I mean, the Hubleys are just an incredible family. I grew up um, watching watching their their films on PBS, and as I, you know, like a bizarre coincidence, um, or not, as these things are, uh, my 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 parents are, are artists and my dad and were filmmakers in the 70s and actually worked for Georgia's parents as interns when uh, Georgia and Emily were kids and Georgia and Emily were kind of kind of celebrities for um for uh cockadoodie and for uh, for the for the you know they they were the voices you know to to, to describe the situation yeah. Is. yeah yeah so um cockabooty sorry not cockadoodie yeah. um uh their parents were were animators um really radical animators like like actually radical animators socialist communist agitating animators who 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 were who were part of the uh, the disney the big disney strike a couple decades before before georgia was born and her but dad by, was a lead animator on the rights of spring sequence and fantasia so yeah a I mean, legit animation resume and, and then went on from disney to to really be a pioneer in animation in terms of stripping things back from that enormous lush Disney style into something that that was way more direct, which is not coincidentally, I don't think, um, you know, that's very much, I think what, what Yola Tango, um, and kind of their, their world of bands do in terms of, you know, sort of stripping back from enormous rock and roll production to something that, 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 that's more direct. Um, and meanwhile, uh, not to interrupt, but I want to just cut to Ira, 
real oh, quick. Okay. Ira's kind of uh, just for matters of time because I got such a big career. I want to uh, sure. do quickly. Ira, Ira is almost a red diaper baby, but late. He's like he's like the grand nephew or something of red diaper babies, or the little brother or whatever. You know, it's like it's like he was raised in a neighborhood with with Lee Hayes of the Weavers around the corner, and in that same milieu, but not because he was born in the late fifties. It was a very different experience than being a full-on red diaper baby who was born in the 30s, um, you know. But those cultural markers still made an influence on Ira, and I, I loved reading the book, the story, you know, of Ira's development and George's as well. But Ira's the the you know, the classic sees the Beatles on Ed Sullivan when he's seven and is buying Kinks albums just a couple of years later. And and as this sponge who becomes a rock critic, and there's a great quote in there that he's one of the few people who failed as a rock critic and succeeded as a rock musician. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a small, there's just, that's a small, but noble group of noble group of people. But you know, Iris had Marilyn Manson is another, <laughs> <laughs> um, success is measured in different ways. Um, Ira has said that, you know, his reasons for wanting to be a rock writer were that he didn't feel like he had enough confidence to play music with, with people and for him writing about music. And eventually, you know, he was also a very um, significant promoter of, of, early, of indie rock in New York in the, in the early eighties, kind of after New York rocker folded. Um, and he said, you know, he, he said he, he wanted to be around music. Like that was the important thing to him, you know, and he wanted to make music, but, but before he could get himself to do that, just being, part of the scene, you know, like writing about it, thinking about it, hanging out at shows with, with other people into it. It was just, it was just how he engaged with the world. And yeah. And it's, I think kind of unfair to call him a failure as a rock critic. Yeah, I mean, no, he, was, yeah. he was on the masthead at New York rocker, which was an absolutely pivotal publication. And, and I mean, he booked the replacements first show in New York city. He brought who's Dude to New York. I mean, he was, he was a player in the scene. Oh yeah. Oh, and he could have been a successful you know, he could have had a successful lifetime career as a writer if, if that was a decision that he, you know, if that was something he, he, he wanted to do, you know, and he will downplay his writing abilities and, but he is, he, no, I think, I think it was more a motivation factor than a, than a talent factor with, with Ira as a, as a, as a writer. Cause you know, he can, you know, he's still a great writer. <laughs> yeah. And, and so let's talk a little bit about New York, New York rocker and the, and the scene he came out of and, and, how that scene spilled over into New Jersey. And, you know, because the story basically starts in New York, comes to Manhattan. New York Rocker was based in Manhattan, but eventually they end up at Hoboken. Yeah. And and are key players of the development of a scene around a club called Maxwell's, which has a fascinating history. If you can just get into a tiny bit of that and how it connects with old Hoboken. Um. Well, uh, yeah. So you know, Maxwell's is um, Maxwell's is a, was was a, a, a working class bar that existed down the block from the Maxwell House Coffee Factory, which was kind of um, for much of the the early part of the twentieth century, kind of Hoboken's main source of industry. And then um, and still the, the the factory was still open um, in into the eighties um, when and in the late seventies when when the Hoboken scene was sort of coming up but uh, it was a yeah working class bar in a fairly depressed city um with the direct connection to frank sinatra well uh well the city does i'm not sure there's a connect direct maxwell's to sinatra connection unless there's something else that's been <laughs> turned up but um 
people, you know, certainly at the, the the jukebox at early at the Maxwell Tavern was 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 well stocked with with Sinatra, and when Maxwell's converted into a rock club or what became a rock club in the late seventies, kind of one of the first things that Steve Fallon, uh, one of the new owners, decided was no uh, no Sinatra in the jukebox whatsoever. Like the idea was that it was going to be kind of like differentiate themselves from from what had come before. Um, but to, to get back to what you were going to say about uh, what you were saying about how the scene migrated over to Hoboken, you know, the, the New York punk scene and what we think about is, you know, like the New York punk scene and, and CBGB and, and talking heads and Patty Smith and all that. A lot of that gets tied up in like magazines, like punk, uh, the, the legs McNeil, John Holster magazine. That was like a, you know, like a hand, you know, handmade super cartoony. That was the kind of stuff that ultimately for a lot of people, became kind of like the iconic version of, of punk rock. But New York Rocker was completely part of the CBGB scene. That's why New York Rocker really got itself going. And the people involved in New York Rocker were, were people who were rock fans who were punk fans because punk they saw punk as a continuation of a, of a much longer lineage that kind of continued underneath all the bloated rock of the early seventies. There were, you know, bands like the Flamin' Groovies and I guess, you know, musicians like, you know, just Link Ray is just one person that possibly, but people who continue to make the sort of stripped down more direct music and punk when punk emerged in, you know, 75, 76, 77, New York, that's what New York rocker was kind of covering. But they all, the people who were running, who were running New York rocker, especially by the time Ira got there, uh, Andy Schwartz was 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 the editor. Were really eclectic listeners, and they loved punk, and they loved no wave, and they loved all these kind of you know subversive scenes coming out of New York, but also had a much broader appreciation for all kinds of other stuff. Band, and they got like knocked. N- NRBQ was somebody who I recovered a lot. You know, Alex Chilton, you know, from who is, is another from musician, big star who in the box tops, who and runs got- that, who runs that, um that continuity. So for me, that's what, and then moving to Hoboken after, you know, is just kind of a natural flow out of that, um, out of where the, the punk scene kind of started to move. Um, and, 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 that, yeah. and that scene got knocked as record collector rock as retro as retro and were rejected roundly in England. I mean, your story of, I think it was the feelies and the decibels or the DBs, as it turns out, they're supposed to be called. I always called them the decibels because their name is the symbol of it. Um, but were rejected in England. They went over to England and England was into synthesizers and yeah. post-punk. But who cares? I mean, I mean, yes, that's a big story. And I know England, England kind of defines indie rock. But for me, the story of Yola Tango is Yola Tango rejecting England, not not the other yeah, way around. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I wanted to get to that point, though, that there's this split in the indie rock scene, which is very sort of unified in the punk. You know, there's a Ramon sex business back and forth in the, in the 77 but by the early 80s it's split and there's basically a wall that goes up and you have bands like x putting out songs like will the last american band played on the radio please raise the flag and and you know rem who becomes very big in america as kind of the flagship band of that scene I don't know that they struggled in England, but they were not the hippest thing going in England in the early 80s when they started. And so that's kind of the context that the the move that bands before and after them would have of let's get big in England and then we can leverage that to get big in the States. That option was not open for Yola Tango because right. 
there was yeah. this big split. And now I got to play our first song. And this is the first song that I really paid attention to by Yellow Tingo. And that's because, you know, I'm in Austin. I'm a Daniel Johnson fan. And I hear uh, their version of Speedy Motorcycle uh, from Fake Book. And this is Yola Tingo covering Daniel Johnston. Yola Tango covering Daniel Johnston's Speeding Motorcycle. And that is, you know, they're, they're a creeper band that sneaks up on you. And that's a, that's an example of it because they, they had grown from these very improbable. I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to get too big on the, the humble beginnings because if you're at a jam, you know, if the first time you play on stage is at a jam party, that's basically a wake for Lester Bangs by his friends and people who knew him. And Peter Holdsapple of the DBs is on stage with you. You know, you're not totally starting from nothing. I mean, they, they were very networked and leveraged in a small scene, but still they were on the scene and they were players and they, and they're putting out records very quickly uh, by the standards. You know, a lot of people work for years and years before they get an indie label that wants to put out a record by them. And Yola Tingo had that opportunity, but the, by the time fake book comes out, I want to say 89 or 90, it is sort of their third transformation. And they haven't even gotten James McNew yet and, and become what Ira Kaplan says. That's the moment when we truly became a band. The fake book period is, is, is amazing. Um, hearing, hearing them become, you know, hear, hearing them become that band. And, and, this, and the, this, the, 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 the story of Speedy Motorcycle with Yola Tango covering it with da- with Daniel Johnston uh, live on WFMU um I think is is also just a, an amazing story that 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 says a lot about who the band is and 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 what they were doing during that era they were getting involved in WFMU which was which was the local college station sort of <laughs> that became kind of a like an anchor freeform weirdo radio station for for the for the northeast and Daniel Johnson became this regular caller um on the music faucet which is a which is a regular show there and Yola Tango backed him up on the air kind of spontaneous spontaneously um and it 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 um like it wasn't even really planned until like that morning or something. And there was almost no way Daniel Johnson could hear them and just their willingness to kind of jump in and do something like that. And then have it turn out as, as something wonderful and listenable. And that, that actually the, the, the version of them doing speeding motorcycle uh, backing Daniel Johnson's is sort of kind of their first hit in a weird way. It was not on an album, but it was, it was like an, it was a single. Um, And that, that I think in a lot of ways um, actually, gave them some amount of notoriety in, 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 in the worlds that they were moving in that they didn't have before that. And, and then they move on to alias records. Another thing that I enjoyed, enjoyed might be the wrong term, but another thing that I gained from the book was an appreciation, you know, Ira and Georgia and James as well have this reputation as just very lovable, very nice, mild mannered, mellow people. But when you read the book, Ira Kaplan's a player and a negotiator and and a mover and a shaker. And you know they they do he maneuvered. He got them on 
better labels as they moved along and even was willing to cut ties with Alias Records around this time and jump to Matador, who had coincidentally just signed a deal with Atlantic and become not quite a major label, but you could get the distribution of a major label. And so Ira Kaplan is a force to be reckoned with, not just yeah. musically, but as a as a business person. Yeah, and I mean, it's yes, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I, but I, what I would say is that a lot of that maybe doesn't stem out of his uh, ideals as a business person so much as just he's he he believes what he believes and kind of and and will follow through with it and is you know he's 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 pretty real. Um, the jump to Matador. Is 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 definitely a fascinating study. Um, they had a lot of relationships with with Gerard Cosloy going back way before Matador. You know, Gerard Cosloy, who's who's the basically you know the co-founder of Matador Records, was an extremely early supporter of the band. The, the first really positive Yola Tango review that I that I came across was in Conflict. Was 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 in his Gerard Cosloy zine Conflict, basically saying taking the air out of everything that we we've talked about before, you know, about how their early days were, you know, iffy or this and that it's a review. That's like, no, this band is extremely creative and are moving by leaps and bounds every gig. Um, so Gerard was really an early supporter and, and very cognizant of, of, of what Yola Tango was becoming. Um, so the jump to matter isn't as much, isn't, I, which is to say that I don't think it was a strictly, opportunistic jump it's not no it was a logical and it was complete it was completely logical and an organic jump also but at the same time it was something that ira and georgia actively pursued and and maneuvered and and severed ties with a a label that they if not had a contract at least had a memo of understanding with and many times that's a death knell for a band to get into a legal conflict with somebody when there's signed paper involved and Yellow Tango was able yeah. to navigate, but I want to. And, I, and I think, and I think that's really that. You know, it's funny. There's on a certain level with them. There's there's their shyness about not wanting to get up on stage or not. You know, this, that, or the other. But on the other hand, there's a real confidence, and there's there is there is there's there is a quiet swagger, which is maybe how I would describe how how those guys work. You know, and by those guys, that I'm not you know excluding Georgia in any way. Um, but you know, they're they're confident. They know what they want. Um, even if, even if it takes some time to, to articulate that. Yeah. And they get it. And I want to get a little more background on Jared Kozler, cause he's a guy who starts a zine conflict out of Boston and is maybe the Steve Albini of Boston. I mean, I, the, my first <laughs> exposure to Kozler was this guy's really a jerk was the first thing I heard <laughs> on the scene. And, and not that I was any kind of hipster or whatever, but just, you know, reading about the stuff secondhand and, and having a friend who mail ordered a copy of conflict just to see, you know, how opinionated this guy, but then he becomes part of the Dutch East India Homestead records and puts out, helps put out a spate of records by bands, uh, green river, dinosaur junior, before they were dinosaur junior, they were just dinosaur and uh, sonic youth and, and is involved in the record industry as sort of a funky at a record label that he single-handedly made a bigger player on the indie scene than they had any business being just through his taste and acumen and, and the, the, his ability to pick the right bands. And then Matador is his baby and is basically built around a band named, 
Pavement, that Stephen Malkmus' band that became quite big for an indie band around this period and, and are the reason that they were signed to Atlantic, essentially, Matador, the label. And so... You know, in the in the book, you reference that Yola Tengo didn't just soldier along as the little engine that could. They also rode a few waves. And in the early 90s, they're riding a wave that's been building just as that wave sort of crashes and breaks because of the success of Nirvana. And the stakes get much higher, you know. And the same thing happened in hip-hop and country music around the same time, that, that these scenes had cultivated waves of artists who had room to grow, room to explore, had relatively low commercial expectations, but also had pretty big upside commercial opportunities. And so Yola Tinko is coming along in this wave of bands led by U2 and REM, and then there's Jane's Addiction and all these different bands that are succeeding in kind of a mellow level. There's a whole network of college radio stations, a whole network of zines that are becoming magazines. And and a whole network of indie labels that are getting bigger and bigger. But then when Nirvana knocks Michael Jackson off the number one slot, suddenly it's big business and Atlantic Records is involved. Yeah, no, there's, you know, for sure. But again, that's a really very gradual shift where that moment of, of Nirvana becoming huge is, is the result of, of a very steady build that begins. You can kind of see that beginning with, with music, Music for Dozens, which was the series of shows that Ira promoted um, back in at the end of the New York rocker era, where he promoted the first uh, New York replacement show, and his you know his co-partner in that um, in that venture, Michael Hill, uh, went on to become an A and R an A and R guy at at major labels, and there is this transition where you get people like you know basically this, you know the people who are working at, at places like New York Rocker start populating. Um, major labels over the course of the '80s and getting bands like REM signed, and and you know, are you know that are, are they were one of tons and tons of, of indie rock bands um, that got signed. You, you know, they were REM were enormous even before Nirvana got big. You know, MTV level enormous. Um, yeah, they had so, done so, so, and... so and Nirvana just blasts everything way open, and you know, there's Yola Tango kind of in the middle, kind of just doing what they've been doing the whole time is, 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 yeah. and, and, and you're right. There is, there is some positioning to like ride that wave a little bit, but they also, you know, they also deserved it. They helped make that wave. <laughs> no doubt about that. And and right at this time, they add the key piece. And as you said, James McNew is a very talented musician. It makes me think of the flaming lips adding Stephen Drotz, whose name I can never pronounce correctly. If you oh have. yeah. No, that's a perfect comparison for oh, James. Um, you know, he's, he, yeah. Yeah, he's um, just this musical all-round talent who really ups the band's game. Yeah, and is you know, he's and he's not, you know, he is he is when I, when I when I say that, you know, Yola Tango has that quiet swagger, James is is, you know, he he's carrying that too. He is very much part of part of that um Yola Tango decision-making process. It's certainly not Ira's band or George's band or, you know, it's it's really all three of all three of their bands um band you know, <laughs> retreat from that sentence before I try to think where the apostrophe goes. But James is is amazing, and just like Georgia and Ira came from a really you know a deep background in the music scene. He was a zine writer, you know. He he was a roadie. He was in tons of bands. He helped flyer for bands. He was a radio DJ, you know, college radio DJ. You know, he was he was he's ten years younger um ten years younger than them. 
but really very much part of the thing, very much part of the same world. And I think that, you know, having that 10 year age difference, I think does add a different energy to the band when, when, when James joins in, in um, early 91. And he is, he is absolutely a, a musical glue, just like, and it's something hopefully we can all get to see all tango live again sometime really soon. But, um, you know, they'll, they'll do songs where it's just George, uh, Georgia singing, not playing drums, Ira playing acoustic guitar and James playing bass. And it's extremely spare. And in like moments like that, it's like, Oh wow. You can really hear the way James shapes what they do. Like his, his like it's yeah, he, he is a, he's a co-lead voice in the band. It's yeah. And, and I think it's very important that you point out the the age difference and the sort of youth infusion they get because I think a key part of their success in the 90s was their ability to interpolate influences you know by bands like My Bloody Valentine that were a new generation of bands with very innovative ideas and and I remember hearing Yola Tingo doing what I called shoegazer music and just you know thinking who's this new shoegazer band and then then somebody tells me it's yola tango and i was i was uh definitely surprised and impressed you know and 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 it their ability to creep along and consistently improve improve and innovate while maintaining a coherent artistic vision i mean you know when i did track down the record painful and i heard it i was like well this is yola tango but it's a new Yola Tingo. They they have grown their palate, but it wasn't some hard left turn. It wasn't a, a right. faked thing. It was a very organic part of the process and really impressive because that's, you know, one of my rules of thumbs as a fan has almost always been buy the first album, get the first <laughs> single, get the early stuff, yeah. you know, focus right. on it before they get jaded and, and corrupted or lose their vision. And Yola Tingo is a band that wasn't really formally innovative to begin with, that becomes more and more formally innovative as they progress. Yeah, no, there it's I I follow basically that same rule when I, when there's like a band that I or an artist that I don't know much about. It's like, well, start at the beginning, you know, like what did they and it's and with Yola Tango that's that's not really the way to go. Um and yeah, um and yeah, that that the, the the piece just piece by piece by piece and like you know, you can kind of hear that shoegazer stuff early on, especially on live tapes, you know, Ira <laughs> Ira well, Ira was probably a pretty literal shoegazer long before long before the term existed um but it's and, the velvet uh, underground influence coming out there i mean i yeah. was able to write them off as sort of a velvet underground wannabe at the time can't sing that well plays a lot of droney long guitar jams has a girl drummer who occasionally sings in a weak voice very much like mo tucker and so it was easy for me to catalog them and to don't pay too much attention to these guys and and then by the time they're paying painless comes out or painful sorry they um are you know like i said blowing me away by being on the cutting edge of sound at the time and let's hear a song from that era this is big day coming by yellow tingo and when we come back i want you to tell me why you picked this song to title the book after let's be undecided let's take our time And that was Yola Tingo's Big Day Coming, a song that you chose to title the book. Why that song? 
Well, a bunch of reasons. I mean, it's, it's a pretty autobiographical song, Free All I Tango. You know, literally, let's let's go down to the basements. Let's turn you know turn up our amps the way that we used to. That that kind of thing. Um, and the, the the title phrase is is super resonant with me. This idea that there's you know the the, the big day just down the road. Um, and I think with the Ola Tango that 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 it, it does describe, you know, the the arc of the arc of their career in the sense that there may be always like you know one, not 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 quite at the big day or something like that. I don't know. That was that was maybe the part of the resonance. Something that was kind of interesting was when I was researching um, uh, the my my Weaver's book. Um, I found that there was a, an old gospel spiritual tune called Great Day Coming, um, which adds a whole other level of, of resonance to, to, to the phrase. But I, I asked Ira about it, and he, he ne- never heard of it, <laughs> came, came upon the phrase independently. Um, so, you know, so again, that, you know, those are some of the reasons. But also um, a, a pretty significant song in the band's repertoire. They, um, at a certain point, started doing multiple versions of songs where they would have, you know, a loud version or a quiet version or an acoustic version or a drone version or a jam version. And Big Day Come In, uh, and that, for me, that became a, a pretty important part of the band's identity um, in that they had this kind of vocabulary that existed, um, you know, kind of maybe outside of, of, of traditional rock and roll metrics, the idea that it's, it's, there, there's not a fixed version of a song. And, and Big Day Coming, I think, is, is pretty symbolic of that. There's, you know, there are the two versions of it on, on, on Painful. Not sure if you played the, 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 the loud, fast version or the quiet, droney version just now. Um, but uh, there's a bunch of other versions that they've, that they've played live over, over the years that are neither of those things. And it's, Yeah, I picked um, the second version, so... Um, <laughs> And and to me, the, for a band that was definitely never audibly influenced by hip hop, and only later became audibly influenced by electronic dance music, they were assimilating one of the sort of conceptual breakthroughs of hip hop and EDM, which is the remix and 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 the re-edit, but without having a producer do it. In most cases, they would do it as a live band, and I always thought that that really showed their ability and their imagination and and the way they kept up with the times and yeah well i mean they james especially is an enormous hip-hop fan and a you know he's on the brand new run the jewels album that just came out last week which is awesome uh, <laughs> yeah i mean he is, you know he like to me that's a really quietly that's like kind of an ignored part of, of yola tango in a way is that you know that james does have you know that James does turn up on these kind of mainstream hip hop, you know, they're alternative hip hop records, but they're, you know, they are in the mainstream. His his bass playing almost sounds like it could be a loop on a hip hop record. Yeah, sometimes. No, there's certainly, there's certainly, uh, he he certainly likes the, uh, the power of one note. (laughs) Uh, I I don't, I don't disagree. It's, uh, And, and let's talk about a little bit about how they survived this initial, burst of attention they they kind of came late to the let's get on a major label and and go big party and not that that was you know their stated goal but that was what was happening i mean you know this is a period in time when the melvins are on a, a major label so the everybody is on a major label yes, you know it's a japanese noise terror band are on a major label and and as always with these things when the record labels don't know what they're doing and they're just signing people and throwing things at the wall to see what sticks 
eventually they settle on a formula. And especially after the suicide of Kurt Cobain, they decided the formula was bands that were as close to Nirvana as possible. And we have this plague of bands like Silverchair and et cetera. And I don't want to get into bagging on those bands, but it becomes very formulaic. And lots of bands get washed off of their major label deals. And Yellow Tango has sort of a dip in sales, but they ride it out and come back with their definitive album in 1997, I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One, which, you know, it went from, from my perspective, oh, Yola Tingo, yeah, I know about them. Oh, they're doing something interesting to, oh, wow, what's this? It's Yola Tingo to, they're at every party I go to as the soundtrack. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. and, and just a couple of years later, I'm hearing them at Blockbuster, you know, or uh, some computer Best Buy, I think it was. I have a vivid memory of standing in line at Best Buy in 98 or 99 and hearing Yo Tingo and just going, what the heck is going on here? How did they pull that off? Well, you know, part of it is, you know, they, they did have major label distribution, but they were never really on a major label. They were always just on Matador, which is to say they were not interacting or interfacing necessarily with the people at Atlantic Records. They're, 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 their experience of a record label was still basically Gerard Cosloy. <laughs> you know, Gerard, Gerard and Patrick um, and, and the whole Matador crew. Um, and I think that being... Um, insular like that really you know help them they they kept their little practice space in hoboken and just kept showing up for practice every week and and changing incrementally so it's yeah they were riding they were part of that big wave but really they just continued doing what they were doing you know just constantly touring constantly practicing you know you, you can look at their discography and say okay there was an album in 1997 and then the next album was in 2000 and then there's one in 2003 but there's gazillions of singles and EPs and soundtracks and there's just constant work and that's the thing that a lot of a lot of bands fall into when they get to a certain point in their careers that they it's like they record an album they tour the album and then they you know they go their separate ways for for three or four months or six months or seven months and they get back together and it's like okay time to write some new songs and get back together and practice for the tour and start you know being a band again after we've done our side projects and race our sports cars and whatever. And Yola Tango never had that break. There's just always consistently working. There's never been like a, you know, even like six months off in Yola Tango. And, and I think that is what, that's why I can hear the heart beating this one happen and why every album after that for me has continued to be really amazing and definitely and no, no steps backward to me. Yeah, and let's hear one more song. This is one of their greatest hits, which is sort of a a, a, a misnomer with a band like Yola Tingo. But let's hear Autumn Sweater. Autumn Sweater by Yola Tango, which is the song that I remember hearing at Best Buy 
uh, around the turn of the millennium and having my mind blown. And in addition to the thing about them having a huge repertoire from the beginning, if I was a musical talent scout or if I was telling somebody who wanted to be a musical talent scout, another factor I would look for, for in as much as they do not have a reputation as heavy party dudes or rock and roll or wild drug crazed abandon, they are club rats. Georgia was a DJ at Maxwell's and Ira, you know, was a booker. These are people who live at the club. And that's, you know, one of the reasons, in addition to my staggering lack of musical talent, one reason I abandoned a musical career was I did not like being in clubs, especially before they opened and after they closed. But Yola Tango loved being out at the club. Yeah, I mean, that was probably... The reason this book happened is because I kept running into Ira and Georgia and James at shows. You know, we have fairly similar taste in things. I mean, I remember probably one of the very first times I, I talked to Ira was uh, seeing the band OOIOO, who are a spinoff of the Boredoms with uh, Yoshimi, the drummer from the Boredoms, at the, uh, not the old knitting factory, the middle knitting factory on Leonard Street. And just, you know, standing in the back of the room watching the show and then it's like, oh, Ira's standing next to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I knew him casually before that, but that was, I, I kind of remember that being a, 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 a turning point in, in talking to him more often about this kind of stuff. And just, you know, I, I fell in love, really fell in love with Yellow Tango by going to see their Hanukkah shows at Maxwell's. Um, they would do eight nights. Uh, there'd be, uh, when it got going, they wouldn't announce any of the opening guests. They would have comedians. And then the shows would kind of like spill out afterwards and people would just keep hanging out, you know, in Hoboken. It always took forever to get home. But it, it, it struck me just how intimate the, the, the scene was in terms of how just friendly everybody was and, and just how, how you know, everybody knows each other. And, and that, that's one of, the, one of the things that really intrigued me is that it wasn't just like a show that was like where the show starts at nine, it ends at midnight, and then everybody goes home. It was like this, this whole, it was, it was part of a, a larger culture that existed. And, and I, I was still really drawn to scenes like that. And even as much as they were rooted and anchored in Hoboken, they managed to recreate that vibe all over the country. And they became true road warriors. And they, in so many ways, I mean, the example of Viola Tingo is this is a band who figured it out, that, that navigated their path. And, and you know, I've got to bring up the food thing. They, they <laughs> always found great restaurants on the road. And, you know, rather than drugs and sex or whatever, they're into eating and hanging out and going to the record stores in these towns and, and meeting the, the people at the scenes in these towns. And it's... um. I just think that the, they're a very shrewd model to follow. If, if 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 you're a gifted musician and you have to do this, which is the only circumstances I would ever recommend taking up a musical career <laughs> in any circumstances, follow Yola Tengo's example of a way to make it livable and sustainable and to keep your creativity through the years, which is really probably the hardest thing to do yeah, in music. I was just thinking about that, talk, thinking about Autumn Sweater a minute ago in terms of their, their like renewable creativity. A song like Autumn Sweater really couldn't have happened in the first few years of their band. The, 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 the lineup of musicians playing on that song, at least when they do it live, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the studio version is slightly different, but both George is playing drums. James is playing a smaller drum setup, kind of a second drum setup. Uh, Iris, and Iris playing organ in 
none of you know except for Georgia playing drums, those things didn't exist in the very first phase of Yola Tango, even though Ira was a piano player before he was a guitarist. Um, it took a few years for them to be like, oh, well, you know, ostensibly we're a guitar-based drums lineup, but what happens if we have a keyboard on stage and all three of us sometimes will go over and play that and, you know, they start adding other instruments to the mix. Sometimes there are songs where all three of them play guitars. Really, at a certain point, you know, a lot of, I think they were always kind of trying to think outside of, of whatever their box was, but I think having James in the band really kind of pushed that and this idea that they could play these other instruments you know they're not obviously not virtuosos on guitar on their other instruments so they're again james is probably accepted to that rule but i think that inspired them to be like oh we can experiment around and 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 make sounds in other ways and not just be limited to like being a traditional three-piece rock band the way that we have been before and that really blew things up around the time of, of painful and uh, i can hear the heart beating this one and there's two sort of non sequiturs, but I have to get them in before mm-hmm. we wrap. And and I want to talk about the role of college radio in their career and also the way that they sort of led the wave to gentrify Hoboken, which isn't what they were doing, but they just found a place where it was cheap and, and easy to live the bohemian lifestyle in the early 80s. And the band goes on so long that they are – Almost Maxwell's at least is pushed out by you know the yuppification that follows the initial bohemianization of a neighborhood, and in the same way they ride through the whole sort of college radio life of uh, WFMU in New Jersey. Tell us a little bit about that radio station and how they were a key part of it, and most of all how they rang it out when it ended. How wait FMU or Maxwell's? Both. Oh, well, um, okay. Well, you know, those, I mean, music scenes are not just bands and aren't just clubs. There are all these kind of supporting pieces around them, inter- you know, and, and radio stations um, are, 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 are one huge part of that, um, especially independent radio stations. And just the weird circumstances of, of WFMU led it to kind of be the house station of the New Jersey and, and the New York, Manhattan, indie rock scene. You know, they were, a, it was a little college station, um, in East Orange, New Jersey. And like a lot of college stations, there was kind of a, a place for non-students to, to, to broadcast, um, to get shows. And FMU gradually, that's what FMU became. And by the time, and Uppsala College closed down um, in the 90s and, and WFMU was able to raise money and buy their hour, I'm a WFMU DJ, buy, buy, buy our, our license back. <laughs> and, uh, and, become a, a truly independent radio station. And, you know, Yola Tango's history with WFMU is, is fully entwined all the way back, you know, way back into those Uppsala days where, you know, I think probably the first time they were on the station, it was with uh, uh, the late, lovely Frank O'Toole, who's, who's, who's a departed buddy of mine, but he was a, um, a, a bartender at Maxwell's, you know, part of the Maxwell scene and, and invited them on. And they just really gradually... In the same way as everything else, piece by piece by piece, kind of became part of the WFMU family. Just to jump all the way forward, literally, I mean, this will date the the date that we're recording this podcast. But literally tonight, Ira starts his very first own weekly slot on WFMU, um, midnight to three, Tuesday, Tuesday nights, uh, Wednesday mornings. um, Which you know, part of that is because they're they're not touring now, but. 
they've become you know more and more part of the WFMU family over the years. In the mid '90s, their uh, roommate Gaylord Fields, still one of the greatest WFMU DJs, um, uh, started having them on on his show to do um, an all request fundraiser every every year during the WFMU fundraising marathon, and that's become this kind of bizarro Yola Tango tradition where they'll play you know, for your pledge dollars, any song that they have no idea how to play, <laughs> they're kind of remembering. So they're so deeply part of that family. And Maxwell's was was just an extension of, of, of that. It was the same thing, by, especially by, by the 90s and the early 2000s, just constant flow back and forth. Uh, Todd, Todd Abramson, who was one of the co-owners of Maxwell's in the later days, is Todd Afana Todd, who's now you know, who's been a WFMU regular for years now has his own regular show. Um, so when Maxwell's finally, you know, closed down, it was, you know, Yola Tango were kind of the, in a way they it's funny, they were the junior, they were absolutely the junior band in the early days of Maxwell's, you know, the, 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 the feelies and the bongos and the individuals and, you know, all these, all these bands that were bigger than them. Um, and by the end, it's like, they're the, 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 the you know, they're, they're the, Kind of the last ones around. The you know the feelies reformed a few years ago and are totally righteous and excellent. But um, Yola Tango were kind of the, you know the natural choice to, uh, to 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 close down close down the club. And that was, and, and and I'll I'll say that even that was a, a, a beautiful thing um, in its own way. I know to just to tie this full circle, like um, Georgia Georgia's sister met her husband at Maxwell's like way back in the day. And the very last week that Maxwell's was open, uh, one of Ira's brothers met met the, the woman that he went on to marry. So, you know, Maxwell's was like this absolute, was a vital community force, like literally all the way up to the end. That, you know, part of the Olatango world, part of the FMU world, just its own world. Cool. Thanks for fitting all that in there. I wanted to get <laughs> both of those <laughs> relationships in and quickly. But now I want to play one last song and then hear you tell the story of how they discovered this song. Uh, and that's my my little corner of the world. And this oh, is sure. one that that Georgia sings. Yola Tango doing their version of My Little Corner of the World, and this was a song they didn't realize they were doing an Anita Bryant cover. <laughs> right. It's a, yeah. Um, they, you know, they're, they're record collectors, and at some point were flipping through the bins, I think in Florida. My, my memory places this story in Florida, not like I was there. Um, but uh, Ira found a copy of a record by a guy named Richie Van. It was, you know, he's kind of a lounge singer type and it's kind of it's like a fake live album. I've I actually found my own copy of it at some point because it's a, it, it is it's a pretty charming record. Um, and he's you know he's doing his little his stage patter shtick, and it ends with my little corner of the world. And if you this is you know basically pre Google, you couldn't just pop in a song title and see where it came from. You know they found it, and this it's such a it's an odd little it's an odd song, and and there are no songwriting credits on this record. And if you didn't know it in advance you might think it's like oh this is like a charming little piece of like outsider pop music <laughs> and you know they event and i love the way that um you know they found out which was that i think ira's mom 
told them. And I think Ira's reaction was, oh, mom, you're a Richie Van fan too? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a great, uh, there's a great reference to that in another Yola Tango song. It's, Send this out to Richie Van in his thrift store corner of the world. That's a, a meta reference to, uh, to, to that record. And, and that to me just sort of, this is a classic story. And I was, it was a lucky chance, I think, for them that their that their mom told them this was a, a well known song because the songwriting team, Parkerson Hilliard, that wrote that. That's exactly how you get sued: is <laughs> you put out a song, you don't know the provenance of it, and you're successful. And uh, a publishing company uh, comes looking for blood. So it was yeah, lucky. well, they, they figured it out before it before it came out. But those yeah. stories are, you know rife in the music industry the first first weaver single same thing happened to to that too <laughs> but uh different story <laughs> and different wait, you, yes and you can listen to our episode with Josie Jarno when we talk about the weavers and today we've been talking about big day coming yola tango and the rise of indie rock jesse always a treat to have you back on the show and i look forward to having <laughs> you back on when your book about bootlegs comes out <laughs> yeah well i'll talk to you in uh Talk to you in two or three years. That's <laughs> an ambitious there's, topic. there's still but... an internet at that point. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll talk to you soon, Nathan. Have a good run. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This is the last episode of our ninth season. Nate will be back in a few weeks with a special mini-season of Let It Roll, We Dig Hip Hop Evolution. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Big Day Coming, Yola Tingo and the Rise of Indie Rock is published by Avery. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.